Well, it's my humble privilege to open up the Bible again for you. A couple weeks off, but uh, hopefully the word from Matthew 13 will be fresh uh, for you as it was for me in my heart. Um, when I was looking at it, I was able to kind of type through some of uh, my thoughts going into a new section uh, for preparation of this week. It's a bit of an introduction sermon, but I'm going to exposit the, uh, the verses regarding the parable of the soils. And it's the beginning of a chapter on kingdom parables. That's Matthew 13. Parables in your minds, minds might be something like, uh, you know, like this is Jesus' version of a Sunday school nursery rhyme or um, dumbing things down or putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. For those who can't hear the more complicated, sophisticated truth, you need kind of a word picture or story illustration that you'll be familiar with to really grasp it. Um, a lot of people have said that a parable is defined as a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I think that can be good to an extent, but it kind of sells short what Jesus is doing in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, Jesus is coming uh, with truth as a judge. He's preaching judgment sermons in a uh, way that is both clear to the believer and obscure to the unbeliever. That's what's going on with a parable. A parable is something that is clear to a believer because you have the Spirit of Christ in you to explain it to you, or unclear to an unbeliever where really uh, they might get it on a superficial level, might moralize it, but then they can take it or leave it. Parables are important for us to read and study. There's seven of them in chapter 13. We're going to go through all seven of them, and uh, these parables are good for us to understand not just what was happening then, what Jesus was doing with the crowd then, but for us, they become a grid through which we see life. Parables unveil to us what Jesus calls the mystery of the kingdom or the secrets of the kingdom of God. What is God doing in his world? What's happening these days when I hear People who are well-respected thinkers who look at the news, they look at, you know, the different um, dynamics, uh, all that we went through with COVID dynamics, political dynamics, um, political candidates, um, people in office right now, and people are saying, what are we going to do? What's happening in our world? These are good Christian people. And I wonder if when they are exasperated at the culture and what's happening, whether or not they've dialed in yet to the parables, because the parables tell us what's happening. It tells us, they tell us what's going on in the hearts of men and women, where life is going. What are the trajectories that Jesus not only predicts, but will fulfill? And these are found in the parables, the parables. Parable is a word that actually means to cast alongside. It's the idea that Jesus has taught what he's taught, now he's casting these parables, these illustrations or analogies alongside of what he's taught, but in a unique way. He's used illustrations up to this point, graphic ones, but these stories, these lifelike stories explain truth in a way that both compels the believing and condemns the unbelieving. 
It's a push and pull that's going on in the crowd. And this is a diverse crowd that's come to him at this late stage in Jesus' third course, third discourse of his ministry. This is the third discourse. This is kind of the finale of his public open air teaching. Everything in Matthew 12 with the accusations was building with a a fuse that had been lit where the accusations were hardening the hearts of the Pharisees, hardening the hearts of the scribes, hardening the hearts of the teachers, hardening the hearts of those who were rejecting. They were, they were hearing the Pharisees call Jesus a Satanist, a rebel, a, a, you know, a pagan, a sociopath. You, you won't even engage your own family. There were all of these accusations that were coming at Jesus and those accusations were hardening their hearts where they were even, the Pharisees were committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, condemning their own hearts to hell. And the crowds were at this pivot point, whether or not they're going to believe or disbelieve. And all of that leads us to Matthew 13, where Jesus is preaching the judgment parables. These are apocalyptic or end times parables, where things are going. And he's seated as a rabbi on the seashore, and then he'll be in a boat, as we're going to read, where he's seated as an apocalyptic judge, giving parables of the kingdom. It's a lot to learn about what a parable is and what it means, because we need to know how to think and live in our day and age today. Look at verse 11 of Matthew 13, just one verse, um, kind of want to lift it out, because the disciples are asking why you taught in parables and what this parable means. I mean, they're, they're wanting to know these things. Verse 11, he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. That's the mood of this chapter. To you it's been given, for them it's not been given. The secret, the word secrets or secrets of the kingdom is the mysterion, the mystery of the kingdom. Mystery usually in a mystery novel or something is more confusing or something you have to decode or figure out. Mystery in the New Testament and in terms of New Testament theology is always a meaning of revelation. It was, it was hidden in the past. Who is the Messiah? Who's coming? What does the ceremonial sacrificial system mean? Who's the one that's predicted? Oh, Jesus is here. He's revealed. And that revelatory or illumined heart is the one that says, oh, you're Jesus and I have found you. And the parables are explaining what to do with finding Jesus in a culture that is given over to defilement and debauchery. What are we supposed to do with these things? Well, I've kind of framed the introduction. I've got a lot on my heart and mind, but under two main headers, the first is why did Jesus teach this way, and then what do these parables mean? And I want to kind of open up my thoughts that way, and then we'll narrow in on verses 1 through 9. But uh, why did he teach this way? What, what is he doing? Well, the end of all things is at hand. Um, you know, the, the culture is more perverse than ever before. It's more predatory than ever before. We're closer to the end, um, one day closer more, our mortality will fail, and God's patience is being tried, and his patience is guaranteed not to last. He will ultimately call things to an ultimate account. So first of all, why did Jesus teach this way? Matthew 12, it's saying that all of the strong, clear teaching was time-fused, and now it goes into a judgment 
category of teaching where he's giving the word of God. The word of God is powerful. It's always powerful. It's a power tool. It's been said in the hands of a craftsman, it can build, it can design, it can create. In the hands of a novice or a fool, it can maim, bloody, and harm. In the sense of the word of God, if Jesus keeps preaching clearly, then the crowd that's rejecting the light is becoming more and more hardened and more and more accountable to what they've been taught. And so in one sense, a parable is a judgment on people who are rejecting, but it's also a mercy because they're, they're, there's obscurity to them, to the teachings, and, and it's protecting them from themselves. It's saying, we don't want you to hold the power tool. I'll show you the power tool. I'll give you the instruction manual. You might be confused, but I'm not going to put it in your hands anymore. That's what Jesus is doing with the parable. So it's a mercy, and it's also a judgment for them. God is mocked um, when people reject the word of God, but God is ultimately not to be mocked. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit, condemn the Pharisees. All of the Lord's attributes are revealed through these parables. You'll see love, you'll see wrath, you'll see rescues, you'll see punishments, you'll see heaven, you'll see hell, you'll see grace, you'll see judgment. All of the scope of all of who God is is found in here. And... uh, you're going to see these things. You'll see these things even in the parable of the soils. The parable of the soils is the first parable. And what Jesus does is he gives the generic points of the parable and then gets into a dialogue about why, with the disciples, why he's teaching the way that he's teaching now. That's what's going on. And then he'll further explain the, um, the parable of the soils, the first one. It's common language. It's familiar people, familiar scenarios with a little twist um, to get you thinking in terms of depth, in terms of implications, in terms of what should be your priorities in a world filled with sin, in a world filled with, um, with judgment that's going somewhere. Well, how should we think? How should we live in this world? What should our priorities be? Expectations. Parables give a big picture. They give a landscape of what is happening. And then it, like a wide angle lens, can be narrowed into a narrow um, focus on what we're supposed to do about these things. Secrets of the kingdom. The secrets revealed. I was, um, two weekends ago when I was out and away, um, my family and I, we went down to Seward. We went down to the campground Miller's Landing and just, you know, pulled up. Behind a picnic table and, you know, sitting there, I was typing and thinking this through a little bit and looking at the mountains across Resurrection Bay and all the beauty. And when the clouds lift off the mountains there, it's probably, I've not been everywhere, most places around the world, but I think it rivals any beauty in the world. It's incredible. That's an incredible scene. That's where I get my phone out and start sending, pushing that to family, you know, like, hey, look where I am, you know. This is just two hours away from where I live. Where do you live? No, anyway, but it's beautiful. It's, it's just God's glory. That's what a parable can do for the believer. We see the big picture. We see glory and we, we feel the gravitas of those who do not see that glory. Well, look, just again, by way of uh, introduction, introduction, verse one um, and two and yeah, verses 1 and 2 kind of serve as a launching point to this chapter and this shift in emphasis. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. 
So here, again, Jesus is in his third discourse. He's, he's in the same day where he's left probably Peter's house in, um, you know, west of the Sea of Galilee. Now he's over again at the Sea of Galilee. He's, he's oceanside or, you know, lakeside. And sitting there, it's like an ocean. Um, there it's, it's a big, big sea. And um, he's sitting down. He's sitting down in a natural environment. He's out of the synagogue. He's out of the, the harsh religious accusation zone. He's in a, a, a populace of people in a natural environment, um, canopied by a sky and, and sea and, and, and sand. And he's wanting to relate on a heart level, seated as a rabbi, but seated as a judgment prophet, giving his heart to them. He's healed diseases, he's delivered a demoniac, he's answered accusations, and he is um, in this fishing community giving his heart to them. He's basically uh, made a decision that these followers are his family. Remember that? The two weeks ago I preached and he was talking about, he was, he was addressing his mother and his brothers who wanted an audience with him. He said, you are my family. You supersede even my blood relationships. You are my family. And yet the crowd is populated with unbelievers who are there as well, listening in. He's trying to reach them as this speaker for God, as as the, the Messiah himself. He's setting a tone. The outside pressures of, uh, of religious um, leaders are now put to the side and he's speaking to this diverse crowd and the crowd populates so much that it goes from hundreds to thousands I'm sure because he needs headspace he needs room to breathe and he pushes out into the sea he says push me out on a boat and again he's seated there Charles Spurgeon's funny because he said that um, the text says you know as he sat down verse 2 the whole crowd stood on the beach you know if you guys all stood up that's what Spurgeon was saying. If the crowd stood and he was able to sit, everybody would stay awake. It'd be amazing. That's what Jesus was experiencing. But why did he push out into the Sea of Galilee? Well, obviously, it's more of a, you know, amplified um, opportunity for him to speak to thousands, his voice uh, being cast across the waters. But I don't want, to, want you to miss the point of separation that this symbolizes. When Jesus pushed out in the boat, he's moving um, a little bit away from the crowd. He's with them. He's out of the religious center. He's wanting to connect with them. He's wanting to warn them. But he's also wanting to symbolize some distance where he's preaching the truth. He's been very hands-on. He's been the healer. He's been accessible, touchable. Now there's some distance. Now there's some buffer here with the parabolic ministry where you have to make a decided choice. Am I a follower of Christ? Do I understand and grasp what's there or am I rejecting what is there? And so he's in the boat. And as he's in the boat, he's preaching love and grace and truth, um, glory, mercy, wrath, and judgment across the, um, the waves into the hearts of those who will receive it. That's what Jesus is doing. This is the ministry of preaching across the water. So what do parables, parables mean? We, you know, why did Jesus teach this way? Well, he's preaching judgment. It's a, it's a mercy to those who receive it with depth. It gives a, um, an open understanding of what's going on in our world and what to do about it. And then it also is a judgment to those who are rejecting. It's, a, it's obfuscating or, or 
um, making it making it difficult for people to fully grasp what's going on as a judgment to them and also as a mercy to them to buffer them from more judgment and uh, exposure to truth. But what do the parables mean? Look at verse 3. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell among, along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell along or among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Um, what does this mean? What does this mean? I mean, I'm sure in terms of agriculture, you could look at this and say, yeah, I kind of get it. I kind of know what this means. I can kind of see things connecting to a spiritual uh, idea here. What does it mean? A lot of people debate the meaning or the application of the meaning of these of this parable. This parable is a seminal parable to the rest of the parables. Don't miss that. It's foundational. To understand this parable unlocks understanding the other parables. One thing leads to another. You got to get algebra one before you get algebra two. Uh, you got to get pre-algebra. I had a problem there before you get to algebra one. But all that to say, that's another story. But you got to get this before you can get that. You got to understand the foundational parable because this is the one that Jesus is using to explain why he's teaching in parables. And we'll see that in the rest of the chapter. He really opens up a lot of verses that are surrounding and touching the, the uh, giving of the parable and then why he was teaching in parables in general, you're going to see in chapter 13. Then he goes in further detail to explain the parable of the soils. And we'll get, that, get to all that next time. But it's foundational to understand this is a judgment parable. This is a parable meant to split the crowd between believers and unbelievers. This is a, this is a um, clarifying parable in terms of what's going on in people's hearts. Why do people act the way that they do? Spurgeon said it, the parable of the sower is mining the kingdom. It's a world of meaning. Verse 3, the sower went out to sow. Let's unpack it. Let's unpack it. The sower went out to sow. It's agricultural. Jesus is probably out on the boat saying, hey, all of you look behind you. Look up in the mountainside there. Do you see that sower, that farmer up there as he's reaching in his bag and he's casting seed? Let me explain what that means. Let me explain that what that means to you and your hearts. That's what Jesus is doing. He's using a very commonly understood um, representation of life to explain something on a deep level about how you're really supposed to think about life. That's what he's doing. Parable. Parable thrown alongside, something cast alongside to make it clear, to make clear a meaning You know, seed is the word here, and we're going to see that later on. That's a very important foundational thing for you to understand. Farmers are basically putting their hand in the bag and throwing seed, just like you as believers are those who should be taking the word of God and giving it out, dropping seed all around. There's two ways to sow seed. One is the ancient Palestinian way, which is to just throw it indiscriminately on the field. And there are footpaths and things through it, but it's just more of a 
They're just throwing seed. Just reach in and throw it out, you know. And then the modern version of farming is to actually till up the ground and set the soil and make it, make it ready to uh, grow things in. And then you throw the seed. Um, if you know me and my agricultural acumen and skill and excellence there, I'm more the um, Palestinian ancient farmer model. Where when I sow seed, I basically look for dry patches and things throughout my yard and just throw it indiscriminately and see what happens. And what's amazing is in Alaskan agriculture, when it rains, things usually grow. That is, it is an interesting thing. The, the grass is pretty strong here. And so, you know, I'm surviving. I'm surviving. But it's just the indiscriminate. It's, it's freestyling. You're just throwing it freestyle-wise. You're not... You're not really doing anything but taking the seed and throwing it on the ground. That's the point. You say, why is that so deep and important? It's because the Christian life, or let me say it this way, life is complicated enough, is it not? Life is hard enough. Isn't it great that Jesus just says, take the word of God and throw it out and then leave the results up to the Lord? Palestinian farmer is doing that. He's just throwing seed. And just leaving the results up to the providence of God or to, if he's an unbeliever, to nature, wherever it's going to land, whatever happens to it, we see what happens. That's how evangelism is. That's how your life should be lived. You just throw seed. You, throw, you don't have to overly think about it. You don't have to overly organize. You just give out the word and watch what happens. A lot of the Christian life is freestyle. It's based on providence. It's based on what's happening in your life. Whether you teach a Bible study or offer counsel to somebody based on the Bible, explain a life principle based on the Bible, your primary task is just to give truth. Once the Bible leaves your lips, it's up to God to do with it whatever he's going to do with it. That's the freedom of the spiritual life. You absolutely have nothing to do with what happens with the Bible, once it's given out into the heart soil of the person you've given it to, it's up to them. They're responding to the word one way or another. It's trusting the sovereignty of God. Nothing more is required of you than sowing the seed. A sower went out to do what? To sow. First Corinthians 3.16, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Some sow, some water, and some harvest. A word represents these outcomes. Um, soils are really outcomes. They're really how people respond to truth. That's soil. Soil is our reactions to the word of God. Simply put, everybody is one of these four soils. Everybody is reacting to the word of God in one of four ways all the time. You want to talk about wide lens Wide lens, broad brush understanding of humanity. Everybody is reacting or responding to God in one of four ways. There's soil one, soil two, soil three, or soil four. That's it. You have a lot of personality-based studies. You have a lot of different ways you can categorize people in terms of their life circumstances or where they come from, what they do for a living. But at the deepest level, people are responding to God, who is the ultimate sower, who's sowing seed in the hearts of this world that's inhabited with the devil. And then you have reactions, four different ones that are happening all the time. And we're the ones that are 
giving the word of God because we've been commissioned and commanded to do it, but we need to give it in a way where we're not looking for pragmatic results. We all want the fourth outcome. We want there to be fruit. We want there to be salvation. We want the soil four. We want the saving soil, but soils one, two, and three, even though we pray for four, we need to accept and understand that God is also in the operations of people whose hearts are hardened and people who are rejecting. He allows for those things. And we don't understand always why he allows other outcomes than only saving outcomes. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to eternal life. But there is a sense in which we have to yield to the sovereignty of God. The modern Calvinism movement called Young, Restless, and Reforms Reformed got caught up in pragmatism. They had the right theology, but then they ran their churches like kind of childlike youth groups with games and programs and licentiousness and allowances, calling it all grace and allowing people to do whatever they want. And they were doing it to attract people. And that's a direct rejection to the sovereignty of God and living in light of the four soils, not just in light of the one. A lot of Arminianism says, look, we'll do anything it takes to get people saved. We want to get you saved. It sounds like a used car salesman. That's garbage. And uh, that's not relying on and resting in the full sovereignty of God for outcomes, for outcomes. It's bowing to the Lordship of Christ where the seed penetrates the word, um, the heart, or it doesn't. Uh, three of the four soils, by the way, are on equal footing. Um, the first and the second and the third are all unbelieving soil. It's all hearts that are rejecting the truth one way or the other. Um, soils two and three look like they might be halfway believing, but there's no half-measure Christianity. And I'm going to prove that from examining the soils. The soils, all three of the first three are equally damned soils. But let's unpack these a little bit generically. We're going to unpack it more as we go. But the first soil is the hard soil, the hard path. And that's in verse four. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. He sowed, some seeds fell on these paths, the paths of the sower, the one that he's walking along. It's like sowing seed on your sidewalk and some of the seed falls on the concrete and it's not gonna, nothing's gonna happen there, right? Unless it falls into the crack of the concrete, but nothing is gonna happen there. It's a hard path. It's exposed, it's exposed. And, and the bird comes and devours that seed. Now the bird we're gonna find out is the enemy, it really is uh, the devil, it's uh, you know, Satan, demons, it's this world that distracts people. And when the seed hits the heart, it just bounces off or it lays there exposed and it's immediately snatched up. And a person is completely distracted by, by the world, by his flesh, and doesn't want anything to do with Christ at all. That's the snatching um, thing that happens all the time. And I'm going to tell you this, most in the world, this is their heart. Most everybody, if you think about it in your own experience as someone who's been exposed to the Bible, has heard of Christianity, has no time for it, and, and it's just, it's a hard heart. It's not the Bible's fault. It's not the communicator's fault. It's not that the church didn't do everything just right. It's that the heart was hard and the seed, seed went there and it got snatched away because it didn't penetrate you know, I was, again, down at Miller's Landing, and I was sitting there, and I was typing some of this stuff up, detoxing, decompressing, had some peanuts, and um, 
there were some ravens around, you know, just hopping around. You see the eagles and the seagulls, but the ravens, you know, and they're scavengers. They want the food. And they know, you know, that if you're vulnerable, there's going to be a lot of food um, for them. So I'm, you know, I'm eating peanuts and typing and stuff. Stuff's falling on the ground around me. And those are dirty peanuts. So I'm not going to pick those peanuts up anymore. They're, they're down there. But I'm, you know, I'm not feeding the animals. I'm not wanting my, my moment to be taken from me. But Judy comes along and she sees some of the animals and peanuts and just, you, you remember that she just threw, you just threw out to the animals. And, and, and suddenly, suddenly a flock, a flock comes. And I mean, I was just uh, covered with, you know, birds and dynamic. And, and it just shows the picture here is so apropos. If a bird sees that you'll feed it, if, just go out to Taco Bell, that parking lot behind Taco Bell off Old Seward. They're, all the seagulls are there. Right? I mean, they know that there's fast food and stuff falling around. Those things will just scavenge. So it's a powerful illustration that we all, we can be very, very uh, attuned to here. But sadly, sadly, the word of God is like that. It's just seed. It's thrown out. And Satan is just sending those birds. There are all kinds of birds that just, poof, you know, just latch onto it. And we have to be okay with that. I mean, we, we're, we pray against it. We don't want that to happen. We're sad by it. But the Christian life needs to be lived in a way where we understand that everybody in the world, most everybody is that soil. Most everybody is that soil. And it's clear that they're not believing. And that's actually a grace because when the waters get muddied, it gets more dangerous and delicate to discern with what to say and how to treat people. But that seed is clear when somebody is outright rejecting truth. A lot of times when I give the word of God and give the seed, um, it's someone that I don't even know that's listening in that's becomes a believer. I think this person, oh, that's perfect. You know, I'm giving the word. We're having the, you know, having a perfect conversation. They're like, well, I got nothing to do with this. You know, they walk away. Well, they were snatched. But then the other person listening in or watching becomes a believer. So I'm dip netting. This is scenario number two, weekend, the next weekend. And I'd never dip netted before. Families came to my aid and rescued me and kept me from wasting all my time and money and life and endangering my household. Um, No, we, we got out there and we had a fantastic time and but I'm sitting there and you're kind of bonding with families you got your net and you know and it was a Kasilov and and uh you know I everybody else was hitting fish I wasn't hitting fish the the one fish that went into my net in the beginning before the big school of fish came or run of fish um was like a dead one like I brought it in and I thought I got it and it, it had been like just just ravaged by seals, you know, to the bone. And it's like all in the net. And it's like, look, I got my first fish. All right, cool. So it was a test in patience, but eventually the fish hit and everybody was happy and I was happy. But, um, but I was standing next to these family members and, you know, these two other families from our church and um, this one young lady who's now an adult and she, you know, you just start talking. Your kids are there and everything. And I'm just like, so, you know, and she was talking about being moved by a sermon. Um, she and her sister were kind of talking out loud. And it was something I preached like five or six years ago out of First Peter. And, and how she's hung on to that. I mean, that's not me. I'm not a very in, like, ex- interesting, like, you know, energetic, entertaining preacher. I, I just try to give the word of God with clarity. And if I feel like it was clear, then I can, you know, rest through the week and be like, oh, okay, I fed them the word. But the word is what does the work. If it's clear, then 
It's mission accomplished. So all you have to do is give the Bible and say verses and speak truth in love, but speak truth and the word does the work. That's what the Bible promises. He's framing that up. The word does the work and there's four categories of how people are reacting to it all the time. That's the sermon. That's the point. The Bible does the work. You don't do the work and people are reacting in four designated ways. And the first is, hard-hearted reaction, people who are unfeeling to the word of God. This is all part of God's secret will. He doesn't want people to perish. He doesn't want people to go to hell. He doesn't want people to reject, but he allows for enemy interference. So the evil one is the, the devil who seeks to devour. I just want to read a couple of verses about that and then we'll move on. Second Corinthians eleven twenty. Um, false teachers devour Galatians five fifteen. You can consume one another in church. Revelation twelve four. A grotesque scene. It's uh, the Satan's fall. He is tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that she so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. He wanted to abort. Wanted to abort the Messiah. Didn't happen. He tried to through Herod, and we know that didn't happen. But that's devouring language. Jesus predicts enemies. We should predict outcomes like these. People hear this truth and they say, no way, it's not real. And they reject it outright. Now let's get to rocky soil. Rocky soil. Rocky soil is the second soil. So you have hard soil, rocky soil. Rocky soil is not dirt mixed with rocks. That's not the idea. This soil still looks good. It, it looks good. It looks like seed should work with this soil. And I've tried to grow grass with soil like this before. It's where you have, you know, hard earth between a very shallow layer of dirt. It's limestone in um, that culture and that demographic that's, that's uh, right, you know, a few inches beneath the dirt. And so the seed goes on that and you, you see life immediately because the, ro- the roots just are very, very shallow. They hit they hit the earth or the rock and they can't penetrate the rock. And so all of the life, instead of building a root system down that will be sustained through heat, it, it immediately goes up and it's just weak and it's got no nutritional value. It's like the, the backside of the hill of my house. It's all still, you know, kind of brown. I mean, it's brown and green. It's struggling. But I've got so many competing roots that are in that system with shrubbery and trees that you know, it's, it's, it's not going to grow well. Well, in this way, you have roots that are hitting the rock and, and they can't sustain um, the trial of the scorching heat as you see that. It's, um, you know, where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. That word immediate is the word euthus. So it's used all through the gospel of Mark. It's someone who springs up with new life and exuberance, but then doesn't run the marathon race of the Christian life. A Christian, sanct- Christian sanctification takes a long time. It's running a race of endurance. It's putting one foot in front of the other. It's committed, commitment to the long haul. You're running um, you know, the, the, the faith race all the way to the finish line. Remember the picture in Hebrews 12. Jesus is the author, finisher of our faith. He's welcoming us at the end of the finish line. He wants us to run to him by his power. That's Christian living, but a lot of times people have mountaintop experiences. They, they get kind of shocked into um, Christian growth and they, they start out real strong and then crash and burn. And it all has to do with, with whether or not someone is truly connected to the Holy Spirit. 
If you're connected to the vine, you're going to produce spiritual fruit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to produce, produce the fruit of the Spirit long term. But that word immediately should just sort of kind of light up in your Bible as something that is warning, a warning sign when someone immediately springs up, but they have no depth of soil. It says, when the sun rose, they were scorched. They were scorched. They were burned, burned just to a crisp, to, to obliteration. You know, the great theologian football player Warren Sapp once said, pressure makes pipes break. I mean, when you aren't strong, some of you will get that joke in a minute, but when you're not rooted Things will break because you don't have a lifeline. Thorny soil, thorny soil, third soil. The third soil is where other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. This is different than rocky soil in this sense. This isn't focusing on um, being, uh, being rooted in the Holy Spirit. This now is focusing on the enemies that are around you that you fall prey to. And the enemy is your own heart. We're going to see this later on in the text when Jesus explains thorny soil. But it's the idea of being choked out by your own self-deception, by your own worries. It's dealing with life. This is something I'm convicted by in my own heart. It's dealing with your life, with your old system of thinking, your old coping mechanisms, your own ways of trying to talk yourself through getting through trials in your own flesh. And the the... Danger of a thorny soil situation is it, it's thorny soil looks good. It looks like good dirt. All the weeds have been picked out. It, it looks good and it looks deep compared to the shallow soil. But the problem is, is the old root system of weeds are still there. It's like the old um, ancient people of that land are there. They've been pulled out, but they're going to come back and get you. You put your new seed in, your, your, the growth is happening, but the weeds that were there, those shoots shoot back up. And if you've ever tried to garden, like I can't, you know, weeds go up and they, they outrun the new life that you're trying to cultivate. They're stronger and faster and they choke out the life that you're trying to cultivate. And that's thorny soil that chokes them, literally strangles someone's alleged new faith. The soil is deceptive. Self, it's all bound up in self-deception. We'll, we'll pick up on all of those soils but next time. But I want to say this. Soils one is the world. Soils two and three is the church superficial. I'll call that a denomination. The Bible Belt that I grew up in, there are so many people that are professing to know Christ, but they are soil two and three. They're not truly committed. They, they look like they're good for a little while, and then they backslide their whole life, but really that means they're not a believer. And then soil three, the thorny soil, is people who they name the name of Christ, but they don't have any, um, any path of sanctification where they actually... Live by the power of God. Soil four, good soil. This is the final soil, the good soil, the receptive soil, the true saving faith soil. The principle is clear here. It says other seeds, other seeds fell, as verse eight, on good soil and produced grain, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. Now, back in Palestinian culture, 
If you had an 8% increase from your seeds that you threw, you were happy. Having 100% is unthinkable. It just doesn't happen. Having 60% is still a massive harvest. 30% is very acceptable. So it's not good, better, best, or you know, kind of like um, some comparison thing where the 30%er is really a weak, weak Christian. 30, 60, or 100 are all strong yields for the seed that's produced. It's just saying that this is supernatural increase. It's increases that you can't um, work out on your own. It's not meant to compete one with another or say, I'm more spiritual than you are. The bird, the weather, the weeds, all were losses, but that's been repaid by this bountiful harvest. I mean, my son's commercial fishing, um, you know, down in Igigig, kind of the Bristol Bay area, and they've had, I think, the, the largest yield in fish. The captain there said, Um, second to or maybe the top one ever. You just never know. You never know. But the point is, if you're the real deal, you're going to catch fish. If you're a real Christian, there is going to be some measurable fruit in your life. No fruit, no life. No fruit, you're dead. Fruit means you are alive. No fruit means you are not alive. These are simple principles and, and yet they're deep with meaning because the applications are complicated. As you look at someone's life, you say, is there discernible spiritual fruit? That's what we ask. It's sobering, but it's real. You'll see it in the fourth soil. I was uh, in an interview with a guy this week. He's a pastor at another church. Pretty significant one, and he, uh, he's in a doctor of ministry program, and he asked me to meet, and he gave me questions ahead of time on evangelism, like 15 questions, and for an hour, we talked through these questions, and he said, you know, do you preach evangelistically? You know, do you preach evangelistic sermons? And I thought, well, if he means by that, do I preach the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, Christ being fully God, fully man, our Savior, our Messiah, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, repent of your sins, bow to the Lordship of Christ, and you're saved by grace through faith alone. I do preach that. That comes in and through and out of my expository preaching. But if you're asking me whether or not preaching that specific kind of message versus just preaching verse-by-verse exposition I don't all the way see a difference in terms of people being saved or lost. I just preach by giving seed out. I just give the word of God out and people are reacting to that. They're reacting to God's conviction of his Holy Spirit by the word of God going out or not or not. So whether you're in a one-on-one setting with someone or you're preaching to a group, it's all up to God. You just give seed. You just give seed, and then people react to that one way or the other. I just said, the question is, did I throw seed? That's the question. If you don't throw seed, no grass will grow. You can walk around my yard or your yard all day long with a bag of grass, and if you don't actually throw the seed, nothing's going to happen. It's not going to happen. Weeds will grow, but not grass have all kinds of weedy areas, but not grass. And it's like fishing. If you don't put the net in the water, everybody's like, we're not going to catch fish unless you put the net in the water. So just put the net in the water, then you'll catch the fish. But how do you catch the fish? Just put the net in the water. You know, it's like, that's how you catch fish. You throw the seed. 
You know, I was thinking about it. People program so much of Christianity to attract people, but that's doing nothing in terms of their heart condition. They're soil one, soil two, or soil three, but we have to throw seed for people to be saved. You can have your bag if you're comparing it to you know, Christian um, gimmickry. You can say, you know, you can dance with the bag. You can shout with the bag. You can say amen to the bag. You can take the bag and take it up to the front of the altar and pray over the bag. Oh, please, let something happen. But if you don't reach your hand in the bag and actually throw the seed in the dirt, nothing's happening. You have to throw the seed. We're just called to throw seed. The imperishable seed of the word of God, which is First Peter 123. It's the living, abiding word of God. That's the imperishable seed. Verse 9. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, Jesus is not mocking by saying, hey, if you got ears, listen up. Will you please dial into this? What he's saying instead of that is that something more than human understanding is what it takes to really understand what he just said. You got to have the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, to open your ears, to see what's there. This is a way of landing the plane. Acts 17, Paul gave an evangelistic message and there were four reactions that came out of that message. He's at Mars Hill. He's just preached the sermon. Verse 30, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's preaching the gospel. Now, here's the reactions. Four soils. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. That's it's hard soil. Just boom. Some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. It's probably soil two and maybe soil three. So Paul went out from their midst. Look at this verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Some believe. We pray for soil four. We accept all four, though, um, under the sovereignty of God. And God gives us understanding for what is really going on in this world as we try to live it, if we will understand these parables.